0: Secrets to Real Estate Investing, episode 127.
1: Welcome to the Secrets of Real Estate Investing show, where you'll learn powerful strategies from top experts to take your investments to the next level. Here's your host and expert real estate investor, Holly McCann.
0: Hey there, welcome to another exciting episode of Secrets to Real Estate Investing. We have with us today a gentleman from Portland, Oregon, who's pretty unique in his style of real estate investing. He has a podcast himself called the Sleaze Free Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm excited for him to talk about that with us today too. And so thankful that Mr. Jeff Stevens could share some of his time with us. So with that, welcome to the show, Jeff.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad to be invited. I appreciate it.
0: Well, why don't you start out by giving our listeners a little background about yourself?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I have been a full-time real estate entrepreneur. And uh, a side note, I, I I deliberately say real estate entrepreneur versus investor, which is probably an idea we can unpack later. Uh, but I've been doing that since about 2013. And then for about seven years before that, since about 2006, it was a part-time thing. So my wife and I had a business uh, doing marketing services where marketing and branding consultants in the uh, community banking industry, and we had kind of this part-time real estate portfolio, mostly rentals, and uh, when it felt like it was time to make a transition, real estate was sort of the obvious thing that we were, you know, excited about and had some momentum in, and and it was an easy transition. I wouldn't say it was easy in the sense of, oh, hey, this is magically, um, you know, uh, fully up and running. There's still a lot of new things to get going, and we had to figure out how do you how do you make a daily living with real estate entrepreneurship and not just sort of build your retirement on the side? But it was an easy decision to switch towards something that had captured our, uh, captured our hearts for a long time.
0: That's interesting. Now, and what kind of rentals were they? Single family homes or condos or what were they?
1: Yeah, they were detached single family homes and then uh, one or two small plexes. So our very first um, investment deal was a triplex. Uh, But otherwise, yeah, small, like one to four unit types of things, for the most part, pretty conventional like listed properties, bank mortgages, stuff like that.
0: And what got you interested to do that? Did you have family or friends doing it or did you stumble across a book or or what what got you interested in it? Yeah, I I
1: just, I mean, it's probably so, uh, so common. I stumbled across a book. I first read Rich Dad, Poor Dad got me excited then I just sort of binge read everything else in that series and and then just pivoted to all sorts of different kind of related things so that was definitely the initial um the initial seed and uh that it got us going and yeah I got obsessed with the idea early.
0: Very good yeah I got um my youngest son I paid him I think 20 bucks to read that book when he was oh 10 or 11 he's pretty young but i thought oh i want to expose him to these concepts really young get it ingrained in his subconscious mind where that's kind of normal and get him thinking that way so glad you came across that book most people that's how they get into it they find the robert (laughs) kiyosaki book so listeners if you haven't read rich dad poor dad go read it (laughs) (laughs) very easy reading too well why don't you give us a little bit more detail about your very first deal
1: Yeah. So my very first deal was, it was very conventional, uh, which, which is funny. Like, I guess a lot of people do very conventional deals, but now what I do is much less conventional. So by comparison, I look back, I'm like, wow, that was so, you know, vanilla. Um, but I, I found a realtor. We looked at listed properties. I knew I wanted something in the one to four unit range. Um, we had probably we were pre-approved for something around $300,000. This is 2006. Um, it actually had it really, in a certain sense, kind of all started with us buying our first primary residence, and that was something I was important to me to do as, as early as possible. But I think we got a little bit of lucky timing, and the market had appreciated it a lot pretty quickly, so we were able to take a second uh, a HELOC out on our on our primary residence, which became the down payment for the triplex we bought. Nice. And uh, it was about a mile from where we lived, and so it was easy to get over there. And uh, it wasn't like a distressed property or anything like that. It was not an awesome property, and I don't own it anymore for that reason. But it was, it was pretty, you know, run of the mill. And uh, so we got a great experience managing things ourselves and kind of doing some repairs. Uh, quickly realized that doing repairs is not where I make the greatest contribution. Maybe we'll put it that way.
0: Wait, wait, wait. So you were doing the repairs yourself, not hiring it out, but with your own hands?
1: Yeah, well, trying to, but I would (laughs) say not terribly uh, successfully. And it was pretty minor stuff, but um, I realized that, yeah, that's not my greatest um, contribution. So it was sort of, I guess, now that I think about it, it was a way to practice and test out a lot of things, being a property manager, doing some repairs, finding something, leasing things up. And it was a great little test project.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You learn a lot. And then I also think I don't recommend anyone like do their own repair stuff. But when you do do it yourself, you kind of know if you're being ripped off. If someone quotes you $500 to do something, I'm like, "Eh, I could probably do that in two hours. I think you're ripping me off. You know, it it helps to know. Yeah. (laughs) It It may
1: be an educated consumer of, of that, as well as ultimately then I, there was a chapter where I hired a property management company and because I had done it myself I was a better consumer. I knew some better questions to ask and I knew kind of what I was looking for. So I'm glad it played out that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it can be, it can be good to do your own property managing. I still do mine, but yeah. it also, it's a learning curve. So oh, yeah. yeah, it can cost you. So you said you don't have that property anymore. How long do you remember about how long you held it before you sold it?
1: Yeah, I think I had it about eight or nine years. Okay. And um, yeah, so when I, I guess an interesting self observation is when I first started, my mentality was um, if the numbers work, I, I'm in. It was kind of that simple. There wasn't like a sense of pride of ownership necessarily or wanting to be in certain areas or whatever. But um, my philosophy on that actually has changed quite a bit. And I, I like the idea of continually kind of upgrading to higher levels of quality all the time. So that's one of the ones that was pretty quick to get upgraded once I sort of adopted a new philosophy.
0: So holding it that long and you bought it in 06, I assume you got some good appreciation. Was that true? Uh,
1: there, you know, it went, it, I don't or think it went, down important. Bought it. it went down a little bit, but I'd say here in Portland, especially with that product, it didn't experience a ton of volatility. So we sold it for more than we bought it for, but, but not, a ton and as I look back on it the real like the real equity that I got was experiential equity a little bit of cash but not you know not too much that's
0: a great point I will I would love to echo that that sometimes the value you get out of a deal is the education more than the income right or the gains absolutely yeah yeah well why don't you tell us um, about like one of your very best deals or favorite deals or most profitable deals whatever wherever you want to go with that
1: yeah, so um, I bought a, a, a small apartment building a couple years ago that was, is eight units, and it's, it's kind of the opposite of that triplex I just described. It's a perfect location in my city, um, super high demand area. It's unbelievably beautiful and kind of a charming, romantic building. It's a brick building, vintage. It's been just loved its whole, its whole life. And I came across the opportunity to buy it. And um, I met this seller uh, again, off market. And we're just, he and, just he and I talking directly to each other. And he says that he wants $2.1 million for the building. And I just said, you know, I have to have this. I don't even know if that's a great price yet. Yeah, I don't know how the heck I'm going to make it happen, but I, I need to secure this opportunity and I will figure it out. And he wasn't in a big hurry. So I, I did that. And as I started pursuing the, the getting the financing lined up and all the due diligence and whatnot, we did end up being able to negotiate it, the price down a bit uh, ultimately to a million So that, you know, is it uh, proportionately not a huge discount, but a quarter million dollars is still a quarter million dollars. So that was, that was good. But the, the most interesting part um, for me was how I put together the down payment because ultimately I did get a, uh, a commercial, a, a pretty conventional commercial loan, but I needed like $600,000 to put down. And I didn't have that in my checking account at the moment. maybe some of the other listeners can relate to not having that uh, kind of resource available. But what I did have were a lot of, I, sometimes I think about my portfolio as like a, a game of chess. And I knew I was trying to make a, a play for a queen, but I, luckily I had a lot of pawns in play as well. I had several single family homes and other little things that were certainly um, expendable in the greater effort to try to get this really gorgeous, really gorgeous building. So the the short story is for six months, I did nothing but clean up these properties, these smaller properties I have, and get them sold, and then I transferred a lot of... uh, I guess debt debt management is a big part of what, what I do. And I have a lot of private notes that are extremely flexible. Mm-hmm. And so I took a lot of the debt associated with those properties and I moved it all around in my portfolio to free up equity so that if I sold this little, say, $300,000 house, I had rearranged the equity and the debt in advance of that so there was no debt to pay off. And so when I sold that little house, it created a lot of cash for me. So I basically spent six months going crazy just doing that kind of stuff, and ultimately was able to put the cash together and buy, for me, what was like the crown jewel, especially at the time of my portfolio.
0: Nice, so I don't know if you'll remember this, but I'm just curious in your area what the rent to price ratio is in that area. I know like nationwide, a lot of people teach, you wanna get one percent, the 1% rule, which doesn't work really anywhere in southern california anymore but um does that work in your area
1: no 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 that's that's not really happening anywhere uh i know that i can make something work if i can get to about 0.6666 6, 6, 6. you know it's about two-thirds of a percent rule is where okay. we can make things work okay
0: um,
1: and by work you know i guess it def- depends on how you define work but it it is cash flow positive each month at about those types of uh, those types of ratios so yeah i know if you're if you're in you know, Cincinnati listening to this right now, you're like, what are these people doing? But um, I think there's other <laughs> there's other benefits uh, that that we have that sort of offset the, the lower cash flow. Well,
0: I assume that um, appreciation is much more available in your area, like it is mine. I mean, I've got a bunch of rentals that I acquired five to eight years ago that have doubled in value. And in the last few months, I've had four tenants give notice my okay, we'll just sell it. There's a boatload of capital gain in there. So why not take it off the table and, you know, reallocate it to something else. So yeah, yeah, the appreciation opportunity is nice, which there probably isn't too much of in Cincinnati, but I don't know. So I won't say for sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You know, you get on um, Facebook groups and stuff and people are sharing deals and I'm sure like I find a lot of the things that other people post are are very hard for me to relate to. And I'm sure the exact opposite is true uh, as well.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like when you're talking about how your first deal was a tri- triplex a mile away from you, I thought, okay, there's triplexes and fourplexes a mile away from me here in Dana Point, California, beach town, But the fourplexes are 1.6 to $2 million. I, mean, uh-huh. I have no interest in buying one of those. I mean, and the rents, you know, I just like, I don't know. I looked at one 72 grand a year on, of gross rents on 1.6 to $1.8 million. Like I, I think people just use those to park cash and protect it and hedge against yeah. you know, inflation, but yeah, it's a whole different ballgame. Well, that sounds really cool. What did you have to do? to your building if anything you said it was well loved so did you have to do a lot of improvements or was it okay
1: yeah in that case like nothing i mean some smoke detectors i think was literally the extent of of the work which is kind of unique for me i would say that most of my the properties i buy are value add opportunities usually you know there's different ways you can add value physically managerially marketing wise whatever but um in this case it was like minor managerial value that I could be adding up and otherwise there's really wasn't much physical value at, at all. And so, yeah, this one, I bought it. It was unique for me, but I bought it just because it was so perfect and it was so, so much kind of my vision for what I wanted a long-term portfolio to look like.
0: Neat. Okay. Do you mind sharing what the rents are on that or what they were, if you remember?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the rents, um, these are large one bedroom units, um, you know, from the early thirties, really, really beautiful kind of vintage, all all sorts of cool vintage touches. The, the rents at the time were probably averaging about um, 1300 a month. And I thought market was 1450 to 1500. So they weren't too far below. Um, So there wasn't a lot of adjusting to do, or maybe more importantly, there wasn't a lot of urgent adjusting that needed to be done in order to justify the purchase. It was like, all right, you know, as these turn over, we can just make minor adjustments and it's not having a big huge impact on the, you know, the value and the cash flow.
0: Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a example of a challenging deal or a deal you wish you never did or anything like that that you would have to share with us?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the the first one that comes to my mind um is really, I believe, the only time that I, I lost money on a on a deal, on a flip. And um so we bought we bought a listed property. I think it was maybe it was maybe in foreclosure or short sale. I think it had some kind of distressed element to it. And it was on a road that was it was kind of busy, but across the the street from the road was a freeway. Um, not, and you couldn't see the freeway. There was a giant wall and stuff there. But uh, so we proceeded. We had a realtor who had found the property for us. And again, I don't. This is not really how I work today. Partly as a result of some of the lessons I'll share in a second. Um, and then we, we were trying to gain, get our ARV put together. And so the realtor gives us some feedback on the ARV and we said, great, we'll pull the trigger. We we pulled the trigger and we did the work. The work didn't go perfectly smoothly, but it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. But when we put the property back on the market, it was like, we heard crickets. I mean, nothing, nothing was happening. And this is a pretty strong time in the market, you know, like 2014, probably, and so it was a pretty strong market, and I learned a couple important lessons there. The one that I think about the most is you know, we use this word in real estate all the time comp, right? And comp, people say, well, so comp means uh, comparable property. But I realized at that moment that the other word for comp that I actually personally think about more today is competition, because I learned in that moment, unfortunately, the hard way that. The, the the thought process I needed to go through was I needed to ask myself if I had this amount of money, if I had $400,000 and I wanted this type of property and I were looking at the options, would I choose my property? And I realized that as I looked at that particular deal, the answer was no, if I had that amount of money, there are better options out there. And so now this, I mean, it was, a, it was a, probably about a $25,000 loss, you know, which nobody likes that. And, but also not life-ending or game-changing necessarily in the grand scheme of things. But that lesson alone has really been valuable to me that I'm always now, as I'm evaluating deals, I'm always saying, okay, what are the comparable properties selling for or have sold for, but what is the competition? And I feel like that is so important. If I had X dollars to spend, would I choose my own product or not? And I, I, So anyway, there's a little silver lining from a bad experience.
0: I do that same thing when I'm buying flips. It's like, well, you want to see what the competition is. And of course you have to reevaluate it when the flip is complete and done. But we are looking at pricing our flips like the day that we're putting it on the market. We don't say, oh, well, we comped it out at, you know, eight hundred thousand four months ago when we bought it or six months ago. You have to know what the competition is and you've got to price accordingly. Cause if there's one not on a freeway for the same price as the one on the freeway, guess what they're going to pick. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's so tough. And I've, I've even done some flips where, you know, one time a house backed to a commercial neighborhood strip center and we didn't think it was that big of a deal, but it was pretty painful. And we adjusted like twenty-five grand for that one. Nope, yeah. it ended up being a fifty grand adjustment by the time we sold it. So it's yeah. tough. You make your best judgment when you make the when you buy it, but it, things can happen, and you get told yeah. by the market, our free market, where people show you with their wallets, with their checkbook, however you want to say, with their loans. This is where we value your property, and you just got to take it. <laughs>
1: So, so, yeah, so true. And it, another little sub lesson in this for me, and it's like so blindingly obvious now when I say it, it's almost embarrassing. But I forgot that the, the context through which people discover, like retail buyers discover properties these days, is obviously the internet with maps based things. So, if you're just looking at a pin on a map and it's zoomed, zoomed way out, and it's, if it's right, you know, the, the map makes it clear oh, you're right on a freeway, you're right by a commercial building. Even if in reality, standing in that property, you're not really feeling that experience, the map is telling the story and it makes people not even want to go look.
0: Oh, yeah. I got that lesson just two weeks ago. I've had a house on the market a long time and this agent um, called and told me, oh, so you back to this street, right? I go, no, I don't. She says, well, that's what the MLS says. And I thought, oh my gosh, on my MLS, the map is super tiny and you don't see necessarily it automatically places it by address it had it on the wrong address and it was like three or four houses away but no I was an interior lot and I thought oh my gosh how many people have seen this wrong (laughs) pin on the map so lesson learned listeners make sure that your property is properly marked and yeah yeah go from there well Jeff um, tell us more about like so initially you purchased your deal through a realtor as many people do and you called it plain vanilla whatever that's fine it's good to like I think it's good to have like a regular vanilla experience when you get started because there's enough challenges in buying real estate that you don't want to make it too complicated but I know you've evolved a lot so tell us about what you do now and do you still use realtors <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so what I do now is um I, I, I consider myself a specialist in off-market marketing, face-to-face direct seller negotiations for acquisition, and uh, and seller financing. So everything I do is um, usually pretty much right in that exact strike zone. So my marketing is very much uh, based around direct mail, and it's it's personal direct mail. It's not you know yellow letters. It's not outsourced to a, a printing company. It's it's done house, I mean, we have like a like a Kinkos type thing that actually physically prints things, but we um, we send our own direct mail uh, to our own little database, and that's the main. I mean, that's ninety nine percent of the way that our our leads come to us. Wow. And to me, that this is an important thing. Actually, it, it is expensive. I mean, there's no doubt about that, right? You can't you can't deny that part. But I find that the way that that um, the way that that interaction pre-frames the whole relationship that I'm about to embark on with these people is so important. And I get, I swear, weekly, weekly, people call me and say, Jeff, I get, you know, I get dozens of letters a year. I mean, I get 10 letters a month about this property. I've never called anybody but back, but I'm calling you back.
0: What? Um, yes, uh, I, what I, you,
1: swear, I swear.
0: What's your secret sauce, Jeff, whatever you can share.
1: You know, it's it's funny because I think it's, it is a secret sauce, but it's not like rocket science. Um, the letter that I send. So if you were to picture um, the, the We Buy Houses crowd, and then you were to picture the exact opposite of the We Buy Houses crowd. I am the exact opposite of the We Buy Houses crowd. So the We Buy Houses letter says, We Buy Houses, I want to buy your house. I want to pay cash. I assume you need to close quickly. I'll buy it as is, you know, no closing cost, all that I don't do anything like that, even remotely close. My letter is basically saying, hi, I'm Jeff. Uh, my wife and I have this small business, kind of mom and pop local landlords. Uh, this is what we do full-time. We've got a, a couple of staff members to help us manage our properties. I'm, I'm interested in your property at 1234 Main Street. If, if at any point you would consider selling that, would you just give me a call? I'd love to chat with you about it. I love the idea of working face-to-face with people. It, it's just this like very casual, non-threatening, non, non, uh, it's very specific and it's, you know, Dear Bob, and it's talking about one, two, three, four Main Street. Uh, It is like a mail-merged letter on a technical basis, but we do our very best to make sure it does not come across that way whatsoever. And there's no mention of prices or terms or fast or this or anything like that. It just feels like a letter from one human to another human. And that has made my phone ring,
0: yeah. That is fascinating. I get a lot of mail because um, I get people trying to buy my flips while they're in progress, you know, from direct mail, as well as um, my rental properties. And it's funny. I don't know if you solve this or not, but one thing I always think is funny. Like one of my companies is called Black Diamond Interests and it will say, dear black. I'm like, "Black, Oh oh yeah. That's my company name. Cause like, it's just taking Black Diamond Interests and like doing that. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And (laughs) I save a lot of them, like to to share with um, students and stuff. But that variety in mail is fascinating. You know, you've got the people that put their their kids or their family or their dogs or whatever. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's it's eye-catching. And then there's a the plain little yellow postcard that's got red and black ink. And it's, it's kind of not that interesting. <laughs> Toss that one. So I find um, as a recipient of much mail too, that what you're saying, I think would really resonate with sellers. And probably the sellers are excited to deal face-to-face with a buyer because many sellers don't like realtors, even though I'm a realtor. I understand that. I respect that. There's a lot of not great realtors out there. Or they're really pushy or they have commission breath as they talk about. But it's all about the sale where, I mean, just you talking about this, I can tell that you have like genuine care for the seller and you care about what they think about you and the transaction and, and all of that, that that does probably come through right from the initial letter. It's not like sell, 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 like all in their face or anything.
1: That's what I try. That's definitely what I shoot for is, you know, I call, I call what I do, um, sell like seller relations. And, yeah. um, I believe that seller relations starts the moment you decide even how your envelope is going to look. And it certainly starts the moment that, um, letter, lands in their mailbox. It doesn't start when they, when they call you. It doesn't start when you show up at their house. It starts when they first have their absolute tiny first experience with you, whatever that might be. And um, it's, it's a dance from there on out.
0: Wow. Uh, About how many um, properties have you purchased over your course of your real estate investing career? Do you know?
1: Yeah. uh, Well, I mean, I could estimate it's not like a huge volume. I'd say maybe 30 or 40.
0: That's a lot. It doesn't take that many to achieve financial freedom. So I think that's amazing. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd be like, I was mentioning, you know, my first deal was not of my current standards in terms of quality. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm not so much a volume guy, I'm more of like a quality over quantity type of buyer these days. And, and, um, sometimes it would be nice to be able to do a little bit more volume in terms of like assignments and things, because those are great for, uh, Grocery money and things like that, but yeah, I'd, I'd rather do fewer, better deals and buy a few, uh, fewer, more properties that I'm proud of.
0: That's awesome. So tell us about your team and who you've got working with you and for you.
1: Yeah, so you know, I guess we have the the team in the sense where we've got a absolute go to escrow officer. Like, wouldn't wouldn't do a deal without her, and if my life depended on it, you know. And- that's-
0: I got to interject because why you got to find somebody who's good with um, the creative deals that you do, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And there's, you know, it's like, I was just thinking for some reason, like if you watch two people play basketball together, who have never played basketball. They don't know when the other person's going to pass to them and stuff like that. Two people who have chemistry, there's so much synergy in that. And so, yeah. um, uh, Heidi, who works with me is, Like she, she can anticipate how things are going to come together. She knows the unique nuances of a lot of the creative things that we do. And so, yeah, it's just an absolute deal breaker to me to to do any work with anybody else. Um, So there's, there's team members in that sense. And I've got bankers and and mortgage lenders and things like that. But my day to day team is I have a a W2 full-time in-house property manager. Um, who kind of started as like a general assistant to me. And then as our portfolio grew, um, there was just plenty of work for her to do just on that front. So she does leasing and management and, you know, runs the app folio for us. And then she does some office management kind of things as well. I have a full time, um, not W2 technically, but a, a contractor, building contractor, who's a contractor, who he, at this point, we keep him so busy. He doesn't need any other clients and it's amazing he does he'll do anything for us from literally rebuilding a house building a freestanding building to uh fixing somebody's doorknob and we've a very special relationship that i'm like so grateful for that because i know that's rare
0: (laughs) oh yeah to have somebody you trust and that does quality work that's amazing yeah yeah
1: yeah and then we're just kind of in between um like administrative assistance uh at the moment but it's just a a nice tight little a little team yeah we have an office in the in a building the commercial building that we own and it's great
0: yeah so um tell us a little bit more about kind of your your business and what it looks like do you do um primarily the holding or you do any flips and any wholesales or what's your whole business strategy and goals
1: yeah so um what the, the word that I invented to describe this is called um, deal mix. And I think that every investor needs to have a different deal mix. And so, deal mix is like what percentage of the different types of deals do you do that fuels your business? And so, my deal mix uh, for the last several years has been very heavily weighted towards uh, rental properties. Um, I don't, as I mentioned before, we recorded, I don't have kids, I, I don't have like it's quite as high of like daily. Um, financial income needs. So I could focus a little bit more on longer term wealth building things right off the bat. But, you know, as my team grows, and I feel like I want to adjust my deal mix a little bit so that we do more things like flips and more assignments. Um, But the way I do it is my I mean, my marketing platform is pretty much my marketing platform. And I know that it's going to um, generate opportunities for me that are holds, some opportunities that are flips or assignments. And I up to this point have kind of, Focused on holds and then opportunistically when the flips and assignments came up I was more than happy to to do those and now I'm just starting to shift my deal mix a little bit towards being more deliberate with finding um, More flips and assignments uh, to do as well So I've been very biased towards rental properties But I'm I'm feeling like just from a financial management perspective It's good to have more of those like quick turn types of cash generating opportunities.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely well, um, tell us also like what, um, about your podcast It has a very intriguing name with sleaze free. What is that? And what do you talk about on your podcast?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I've been, I've been wanting to do a podcast for a while. And, uh, so I, I got started earlier this year about around the beginning of March and, um, one of the things I've always found frustrating about, uh, especially in this more, most recent chapter of my career, is when you say you're a real estate investor, this kind of goes back to what I said at the very beginning. I describe myself as a real estate entrepreneur. And I, I think that real estate investors, um, like that term doesn't always have a great connotation. And uh, it's unfortunate, but I, I think that maybe some elements of that connotation have been, have been earned collectively by the group and um, so I had if I could back up for a second I had this interesting experience that was very traumatic to me and scarring where I bought that first triplex as I mentioned I got all excited and then I started finding podcasts and and I went to a conference like in, in like Atlanta or something and it was one of those conferences where the gurus speak and pitch their package and I bought a package and I came back and that's really when I learned about wholesaling and got super fired up and I, I was taking action, which I thought, hey, this is what you're supposed to do, take action. And I had this super traumatic experience where um, somebody who, I guess, they, they, I guess, got wind or whatever you might say that we were looking to maybe assign a transaction. It's like basically the first one I was trying to do. And this person showed up on my front door of the house that I live in on a Sunday and knocked on the door and I opened the door and he said, are you Jeff? And I was like, yeah, I'm Jeff. And he said, well, you know, I'm so-and-so and I see what you're trying to do here. You don't even want to buy this. You're going to pass this. I, you know, you were sleazy. We don't do that kind of stuff here in Portland. And he slammed the door in my face and you got to understand, like, I've been a good boy my whole life. Like up to that point, no one has ever said anything to me like that. And I just, I just shriveled up and like died inside as it related to real estate. And I, I mean, I, I always say I had to like, go take a shower. Cause I felt, so dirty. And that put me on the sidelines for seven years. I didn't do much of any, anything. I did a couple deals that were, again, super vanilla, but nothing like entrepreneurial, really, mm-hmm. because I was so scarred by that feeling of being uh, put in a box and being called sleazy. And so when I wanted to start this podcast, I thought, I don't want anybody else to feel that way. And I know that what I do now is actually, it, it it totally avoids all that anyway. And so that's kind of the main concept that I wanted to espouse with the podcast.
0: Wow, what an interesting story. Well, I'm glad you didn't retreat forever because it sounds like you're doing wonderful things and serving serving sellers well and showing your genuine concern and compassion for them. And that's why they do deals with you. And, and we haven't talked about this too much, but um, seller financing, how big of a part of that is? How big of a part is that in your strategy and in your purchases?
1: Yeah, um, I would say it's a, bit, it's a very big part. The way, the way that I think about it is it's a, a huge part. I would say probably, you know, 60% of the deals I do involve seller financing. So it's not 100%, but it is, um, it is a dominant thought in my mentality, in my approach. And I guess I've, I feel like I've cultivated... Um, a good ability to listen for a lot of the, the clues and cues that might take that door of possibility and just open it up a crack, just enough for me to put my hand in there and say, wait a minute, let's talk about this. And um, I think there's so many myths around seller financing. Actually, this is one of the episodes I did of the podcast, which was like the the five myths of seller financing. And just to sort of summarize it, people, people just generally tend to feel like seller financing is what you do when you cancel your property in any other way. And um, and like oh well it's a seller's market right now so between those two things nobody's doing seller financing and it just couldn't be any further uh, from the truth and so I'm I'm sort of passionate about spreading the gospel of of uh, real estate entrepreneurs learning how to listen for those cues and and you it's such a powerful tool it's so potentially mutually beneficial
0: yeah I'm a big fan of it and it's funny because uh, one of my rentals I have in the market now I had somebody call me that clearly was an investor and one of the first questions I was like so was there a mortgage on the property (laughs) and I started laughing and I in a nice way not you know to be mean I'm like uh yeah there is and I plan to pay it off but um good question (laughs) so yeah it's fun well let's talk about uh, our free giveaway our free download that we have for this week listeners Jeff is graciously giving us his download called the five critical mistakes made that make most real estate investors accidentally lowbrow. So tell us about what this is, Jeff.
1: Yeah. So what I call what I do overall, uh, thoughtful real estate entrepreneurship. And I I realized that as I was going to be describing to people what that meant, I needed also to be able to describe the opposite of what that is. And so the word lowbrow is the word that I use to describe kind of the antithesis of, of my approach. And lowbrow isn't necessarily a, a bunch of bad things by, by itself. It's just, I find that a, a vast majority of real estate kind of conversation and education stuff is very, very simplistic. And so for instance, if you if ever heard that expression that you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yes. So I feel like that is a disease that um, the real estate education market uh, inflicts upon people. So like, for instance, if you get really excited about wholesaling, um, then you go out and everything you look at, you just look at through that one uh, perspective, that one set of lenses, which is, you know, buy low, sell high. And so to me, there are things that people do, a, a set of things that people do, like, for instance, thinking that the only way to make money in real estate is buy low, sell high that to me is um, it's just overly simplistic and I put that in the category of lowbrow. So in this PDF, I, I just wrote out uh, the, the five things that I see that people do the, the most, that um, one way to put it is that make them lowbrow, but another way to put it is simply to say that um, is limiting the opportunity that they're allowing themselves to experience because they're not seeing a broader perspective about what might be possible.
0: Yes, yes, and so much of, Success in the real estate investing world is determined by someone's ability to think creatively or outside the box or, yeah, I'll just say it that way, to, yeah. to expand their mind. So, yeah, I'm excited um, for people to have this in their hands and hopefully expand their thinking in their mind. So thank you for offering this. So listeners, you can get this by going to hardhatholly.com forward slash 127. We are show number 127. And additionally, if you prefer to get a link to it on your cell phone, you can text um, the word hard hat with no space in between it, hard hat to the number 38470. That's 38470. Text hard hat to 38470, and we'll send you back a link to this and just notify you once a week when we have new podcast episodes out. And um, you also get access to all of our pass-free downloads as well. So at that, Jeff, how do people get in touch with you or learn more about what you're doing? And tell us the name of your podcast once again.
1: Yeah, so the podcast is Sleaze Free Real Estate Investing. And uh, I made a simple short um, address that you can use to get there. So if you go to listen.thoughtfulre.com, then that will take you to the Apple iTunes version of the podcast and you can email me at me, M-E, at thoughtfulre.com. And one other thing that I'm just this week actually doing for the first time is I'm I'm hosting a live webinar that I think we're going to do it more times in the future, too. So regardless of when you're listening, this, is, uh, this will work for you, too. But it's called, um, it's about seller relations mastery. And that's what I'm going to talk about is generally my approach there with working directly with sellers and how to open up doors for that. So if you go to sellerrelationsmastery.com, then there's just a way to uh, sign up for a free webinar. If you're interested in that too.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all that you've shared, all of your insights. Um, really appreciate it. Love. Everyone knows I love having real people with real stories and love to hear the good, the bad, the challenging, the, the wins, the success. So thanks so much for being so open and sharing all that with us today. So with that, that is our time for today. Thanks so much for listening guys and get out there and take some action and can't wait to hear your success stories.
1: Thanks for listening today. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review our show and let us know in your review what you'd like to hear more of. For the show notes and free downloads for this episode and all others, go to hardhatholly.com.